The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz. With me today is a very special guest. He was a former ECW announcer, commentator, manager. Of course, you probably know him from his podcasts as well. He is the stud muffin. Well, 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 Mr. Joel Gertner. Welcome in. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, thank you, JP. Thanks for having me. So what have you been up to? What's been uh, going on in your world? I know you're keeping busy with the podcast game, but what's going on? Yeah, doing the damn thing, man. Living the dream. Uh, just whatever's clever, you know? Yeah, got the 69-minute eargasm. Uh, just had a two-part interview with TJ Wilson, Tyson Kidd. And uh, and we've got a few great guests coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, and also have a monthly podcast on ad-free shows, Patreon, uh, with the Blue Meanie and Josh Chernoff called That Was Extreme, where we look back at an athlete or an event. Uh, some sort of theme, and uh, and we do that once a month. Uh, so we'll be actually having our Zoom that goes out to all of the top guys that have attained that level of ad-free shows. We'll be doing that tomorrow night um, for our July episode, and our July episode will drop tomorrow. Aside from that, gosh, man, I did a virtual signing last weekend. I am ring announcing for VXS on Fight TV this Saturday. Uh, I've got about a half dozen gigs in July and, uh, and just, and that's just wrestling alone. Uh, on top of that, just trying to day trade and, uh, do some background acting and, uh, and during the school year, did a little substitute teaching, just whatever's clever, whatever doesn't feel like work, whatever's fun and whatever I feel passionate about. Now, you know, you mentioned ad-free shows, and that was extreme. Obviously, ECW original. I'm always kind of curious, like, how the guys get into ECW. I, I, you know, like, you hear the background, but how do you really get in? Like, how do you get the foot in the door there? Sell your soul to the devil. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, a lot of the guys were on the indies first. Uh, a lot of the guys, uh, I, I was on the indies and doing gym shows, bootleg shows. Uh, but then again, I got in at, at right on my 20th birthday. Um, so the four years when I had been in the business before ECW, I was a teenager. I was in high school and college. Uh, some of the other guys who were in their earlier mid-20s, uh, they got in after a few years of 
perhaps being trained by Johnny Rods and uh, maybe going to the Caribbean, maybe a trip to Japan uh, and, and work in the local indies, the New York, New Jersey area, working for like IWCCW and stuff like that. When you break in, were you trained as a wrestler at first or never or not really? Not really. I took one or two classes as a wrestler and uh, and I already knew going into those that that's not where my bread was buttered. And I already knew that that's not how I would be contributing um, to wrestling as my calling. But I wanted to take at least a couple of classes just so that I had a feel for it and just so that I could get a better respect for it. And it pays off because, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, internet pay-per-view doing color commentary, calling a match, let's say, of Sabu's, and he'll do something at age 50 that's just incredulous. And I'll say, you know, you're 25 years old right now, and you're in your mom's basement, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm half the age of Sabu. I could do what he just did. Well, just realize you probably wouldn't even be able to run the ropes, let alone, and then I'll, I'll go into talking about how, you know, even just to run the ropes takes, um, you know, you have to just learn and, and get conditioned to it and get accustomed to it and, and your skin and your body have to, you know, it's being a wrestler isn't something that just happens by accident or because you want it to. So, um, so, you know, learning how to take back bumps, learning how to tuck your chin in your neck, learning how to run the ropes and, and, and feeling what that feels like. Um, all those were great things for me so that I am able to call a match just a little bit better because I do have that experience. When you break in ECW really as, as an announcer, ring announcer first, right? Is that kind of the, uh, the first start, if you will, in ECW? Yeah. Yeah. Timekeeper and, uh, and a part-time ring announcer. And then as Bob Ortiz went on hiatus and, and stepped aside for a few months, became the full-time primary ring announcer. Uh, when the Lucha guys and when Damian Seis came in from Japan as a Lucha guy, uh, I did Spanish Lucha style. And for Damian, I did Japanese. Uh, so multilingual ring announcing. And then became a heel ring announcer, which led to me becoming a manager. And then from there, um, after the Dudleys left, with TNN became the co-host with Joey Styles and color commentator for the show. So I, I think in the history of, you know, if we're calling ECW, you know, a, a territory in the history of pro wrestling, I am either one of two or three or one of one, somebody who started out as a timekeeper and a backup ring announcer and made it to become the co-host and color commentator of the show pretty impressive it, it was nice really it, it was you know and it was just what the company needed uh it was at at the time as it was happening episodically and just chronologically and work in progress style it really just was getting moved sideways and i just kept auditioning i, I kept treating every performance like it would be my first and last time through the curtain and um so it was these sideways moves that i was blessed enough to uh, to put my best foot forward and turn into uh, promotions, so to speak. Who is like your boss technically? Is it like Todd Gordon or is it really Heyman when you first started? No, you never. I mean, you you know, you just you're happy to be there and you really don't ask too many questions. 
it seemed to be both of them uh, on different levels and different aspects and, and different facets. Um, it seemed to be both. I treated both like they were my boss because they certainly had that reverential kind of, they were in a position, you know, I, I knew that they were the authority and I knew that they were, you know, who was to be answered to and, uh, and, and who was at the top of the chain. So to, you know, it, it would be tough to tell you exactly, um, you know, Paul was definitely in charge of the creative. Paul was definitely for TV, the executive producer. Um, Todd was the founder and Todd was a backer and Todd was the one who brought Paul in. So, um, and, and then, you know, you would get paychecks either before or after WWE involvement, uh, before or after they both, at both times, the paychecks said, HHG Corporation. And we were always told that the HHG stood for Heyman, Heyman, and Gordon. Uh, so Paul, his father, and Todd is what all of the boys understood HHG to stand for. So, um, so yeah, they were both our bosses. With Paul, and this is a question I always ask the ECW guys, genius not a genius. It's funny. It's like split down the middle, but some say yes. Yeah, some play creatively. Is he a creative genius? Well, do people really say he's not a genius? They kind of blend in the business aspect, and then they kind of blend that saying, "Oh, he's a bad businessman." But really, I'm wondering the more the creative end. Well, creatively, it's indisputable. Creatively, he's a genius, and he's been around wrestling since he was a kid, and he has an acumen for it. And he, it, it resonates within him and, and he, it's his calling. He gravitates to rest. And there's no, there, there's no disputing that he's a creative genius. On the business end, I don't even know so much, you know, not to be an apologist, but I, I, he's my mentor. So if I were going to apologize for anybody, it would be for him. But not to be an apologist. But I don't, we'll, we'll never know, I think, whether it's so much if he is a bad businessman, but he was spread very thin. And he very much understood that the company was tethered to him. And as went the company, so the perception was with him and vice versa. So... It's not even so much necessarily that he's, all else being equal, a bad businessman. It's um, the sense that I got more is that he took on too much, spread himself a bit too thin, and was a little reluctant to delegate duties. And, uh, and, and maybe, you know, therein kind of, you know, lied to the rub when it came to some of the, you know, shortcoming or, or, the, or the, you know, the falling shy uh, on the business end. We'll never know. You know, if if there were more hours in the day, if he had less to worry about, it. I mean, you know, just you know, what if? But um, but as it was, and especially with the way the TV landscape wound up playing out, and especially because we had two other companies that had bigger war chests than us, better TV deals than us. Um, it, it was just, you know, we were blessed and we were cursed. But um, no, Paul Heyman absolutely positively is a wrestling genius. With that, 
I know a lot of the guys say too, like bad TV deal, bad pay-per-view deal, bad figure deal. It was almost like, oh, you had to get it. You needed pay-per-view. You needed TV. You needed the action figures. You need the video games. But there were bad deals business-wise, right? I mean, is that pretty much not the, the, the sum of it, but that's a lot to do with it. No, yeah. Mo- no, most of that checks out. And when it comes to TV, for sure. And when it comes to TV, it was a very kind of codependence not the right word but it was we needed tn what what was helping keep us alive was killing us um and that you know to an outsider looking in how can that be and how is that possible but it really really was that way what was giving us a push was squeezing us and then you know tnn saw that they could maybe wrest WWE from USA, and we wound up being guinea pigs used to prove concept that wrestling would work on that station. And uh, and we really did wind up as kind of, you know, the pioneers that got the arrows in our backs. It's funny learning now, years later, like how the pay-per-view companies work. Man, that stinks. You get like half of the income, but you don't get it for months. So it's like you could have a successful pay-per-view, but you wouldn't know it for six months or whatever it is. It just right. that's, that sucks. Right. Now, when you're Vince and you have the war chest, you can go ahead, invest the money. It takes six months to come in. As it's coming in, you also hold it for six months. You put it in a CD. And then six to 12 months after the pay-per-view, once you've gotten interest on all the money, you go ahead and pay out bonuses. Um, we, on the other hand, we were the furthest thing from being able to have a few months to put the money into a CD. Instead, to get our money as upfront as possible, we would use, I think we'd utilize factoring companies where we would essentially take a lump sum payout early and let a, a money company come in and buy out our rights to our payouts that we'd get over the six months. And then instead of them coming to us, they'd go to those companies who bought them from us lump sum early on rights buyout, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we, we just, you know, we, we, we didn't have the luxury of having the luxury. And when you're the number three company in a three company war, uh, that's, you know, not quite a desirable position to be in. Man, it's like just to think about the landscape then with the three big companies and how many people were watching wrestling and, you know, ECW flourishing, but obviously having to deal with the big two was definitely a problem. Was that a, in, in a certain aspect, a good, good thing to be in, be that underdog role? Because, you know, it kind of gets the, the big cult following going. Underdog, yeah. Um, you know, Paul at a Q&A said that we were happy to be Snapple in the Cola Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, no, being the underdog in and of itself wasn't bad. Being number three, a legitimate number three, looked at in certain respects where it comes to brand loyalty and halo effect. In many respects, a lot of people placed us above WCW and actually considered us number two to the World Wrestling Federation at the time. Um, That wasn't the problem. Um, The problem was, you know, like I say, it's just, you know, at the time, and and it seems crazy now, and TV has changed and more people are watching on YouTube 
and you know there's fight tv and iwg there's there's all this different but back then when it was more centered around tv and you needed a cable tv deal and that kind of thing we were getting you know comparatively to what AEW and NXT are getting now you know 500,000 700,000 we were getting a million viewers a week and we were on Friday night from 8 to 9 p.m. when a lot of our 18 to 25-year-old high school and college kids that watched us wanted to be out of the house by 8, 30, 9 o'clock on a Friday night. So, we, you know, we, we did well. You know, depending on the metric, we did well. It, it's just, again, at the time when you're up against Raw and you're up against Nitro, and we just, you know, we we couldn't we couldn't compete. You know, if somebody could come along these days and be a strong number three or two to WWE and AEW, and if they could do even seven hundred thousand viewers, now that things are getting back after COVID to the road, they would be a viable business depending on how they govern themselves. But with us, we had a million viewers every Friday. And again, just because of the way things were at the time, we just weren't able to make it work. That MSG 2 a.m. sometimes would fluctuate to one, but that was almost the perfect time slot. Because you think about it, those guys, those college kids, they're done. They're home. They're looking for something to eat. Oh, let's watch some ECW and finish drinking for the night or whatever. It was almost that perfect time slot, if you think about it, in a weird, weird way. It really was. And, and, and we were on late at night at about 2 in the morning, in a lot of markets, I think in Boston as well. And we, we just a lot. Um, that, that was pretty commonplace Friday or Saturday night uh, that late after midnight. And sometimes it would be on the RSN, the regional sports network, like an MSG or a sunshine. Sometime it would be um, on the Spanish language station, um, a UHF station that was selling paid time, uh, anything like that. We, we really were the little engine that could. And, uh, and just did whatever we needed to, man. We just did whatever we had to do and just scratched and clawed. When ECW is kind of rock and roll, like we're talking about the 90s here, when it starts to get rolling, what like what are you doing like besides? Because I know everyone says like, okay, I had three jobs or I didn't have official job titles. I'm doing this, this, and this. Like, What were you doing at that period? Because I know obviously what we see on TV, but you probably had three or four other roles. In the company, I was just kind of, I, I, so I worked at a hotel, so I kind of was indirectly, you know, the same way Howard Finkel was a ring announcer, but he also did travel, is the same way indirectly for some guys who were top guys. I worked at a Marriott hotel, so at the time in the late 90s, mid-90s, I was getting uh, courtyards for 29 in tax, residence in, courtyard in Fairfield for 29 residence in for 39 and full service marriott's for 59. So full service marriott's the same ones that most people are paying 159. I had an employee rate and I was getting them for 59. So I I booked a lot of hotels for guys. Uh I did that but um when I first started as a ring announcer I wrote for the program. I wrote an article called The Time of the Fall. Aside from just those couple of things I really didn't have, and then, you know, well, and I did do some mild production, um, you know, just uh, such as it was, um, not much uh, in the TNN days when I was around the studio. 
But um, aside from stuff like that, that was it. Um, it was mostly just performing and being talent. Uh, I worked at the hotel and I did that. Um, if we had a triple shot, if it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday week, I worked at the hotel four days a week. If we had just Friday and Saturday, I worked at the hotel graveyard shift the other five. So I think in the calendar year 1997, I want to say between the hotel and ECW, I worked 362 days that year, and I had three days off. Wow. Yeah. Hard worker. Jeez. You need a vacation. Yeah, man. I would, point. you know, I would, we'd be at a Friday night house show. Like, I remember one time in New England, you know, we were like match number eight, eight out of nine or seven out of eight, and it would be like match five. And I'd have gotten dressed during like match two or three. And I've got my neck brace that I was so used to wearing on. And, uh, and, and I'd taken, I'd, I'd fall asleep. You know, it would be Friday night at nine o'clock, nine 30, uh, you know, three matches after I got dressed three matches until we're going out through the curtain and I'd be sitting in a chair backstage and not only asleep at nine o'clock at night, but asleep with the neck brace and a bow tie around the neck brace, which, you know, <laughs> until you get used to it is, uh, is, is not exactly, you know, living your best life. But, uh, no, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was fun, but you know, I was young, dude. The whole ECW run for me was age 20 to 25. And uh, so, yeah, you know, that's when you do it, you know. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned Paul as your mentor before. How would that relationship go? Like, would he kind of teach you the ropes or is it kind of one of those things where you're just watching and learning? Or is he physically bringing you along as, as a protege? He taught me a lot. He, um, listen, man, he uh, he put me opposite side of the screen from Rick Rude, point counterpoint. He gave me the nickname of Quintessential Stud Muffin, which is an homage to the universal heartthrob, Austin Idol, who he managed. Um, gosh, I mean, he made me the co-host and the color commentator on his product when I was in my early 20s. Just like in WCW, he was a color commentator in his early 20s. So, I mean, he, you know, I, I saw him as a mentor uh, and didn't want to ever disappoint him. And, and he did teach me a lot of things. You know, there was a time where, you know, the fans always, uh, it got to the point where, you know, first they hated me for a little while. And then, you know, I guess because of the sexual limericks or whatever, it started to be like they loved to hate me. And then it was almost more like they hated that they loved me or that I became a tweener. And it happened on a different trajectory than the Dudleys themselves, Bubba and Devon. Those guys were still kind of heels and getting in the fans' faces as heels and getting heat and trying to start riots. And I was trying to be cool and get over. And, 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 and that was acceptable to an extent. I think somebody leaned their hand across the guardrail and I think I kind of slapped it or whatever. I did something that was a bit too babyface-ish. And I got back to the locker room one time and Paul said, I just want to let you know that, Joel, you're worth a million dollars to me as a heel. As a baby face, you're worth absolutely nothing <laughs> at the moment, and you're replaceable. So what do you think is the takeaway from that? I was like, to be a heel. He's like, absolutely. You're worth a million dollars to me as a heel. So along the way, you know, I, there, there were opportunities to learn from him 
uh, in taking direction from him. I like that he saw himself in you pretty much. Like he was kind of giving you the the Paulie Dangerously role. I can only hope so. Yeah. Where did the you know, we quintessential stuff stud muffin, we know where that came from, but where does the well, well, well and those limericks and and like the even the voice changing and like the inflection, where does all that come from? Well, the limericks I wrote, um the first one ever was just like Rubik's Cube, the more you play with it, the harder it gets. When I was ten <laughs> when I when I was ten years old, I read that in a joke book and I never for like truly tasteless jokes or gross jokes, and I never forgot it. So when the time came, I put it to good use in the wrestling business. 99% of those limericks were written by me. Uh, but quintessential stud muffin was Paul's. Yep. And uh, well, 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 I'm pretty sure also was Paul's. He told me to use it the first time. Thought it sounded villainish. Thought it sounded heelish. Yeah, Paul's big into like Warner Brothers and cartoons and Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. So I know that well, 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 uh, definitely came from him. And I think um, once it kind of got over the first time or he liked the way it sounded or the reaction to it, he advised me to keep using it. And the sexual innuendos, is that all you or is it him saying, oh, you know, play it up a little bit? He kept allowing me to play it up and he would, you know, they, they went from, you know, as, as short and, and trite and, and concise as that Rubik's Cube one is, they, they got um, a lot of, you know, four stanzas of four. And, you know, there was one that I had to memorize one time a half hour before the show. And I mean, they, they, you know, there's just, um, you know, he, he I really, I, man, I get on that mic for five, six minutes and, you know, and, and, and I'm thankful that I, <sighs> yeah, I, you know, we, we were all just blessed to have, such input into our characters and 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 just it, it, it was such a family man it just it, it really just grew so organically and and so it it, it was i don't know there's obviously never gonna be anything like it again with you having some freedom and stuff and obviously the dudley boys have some freedom you ever fear you ever get a fear uh that you know you're gonna get your ass kicked or anything like that or you ever get a fear as far as some um, some riots starting and things like that. No, <laughs> not really, because between the Dudleys and and Atlas Security, um, the short answer would be no. I I always felt protected, whether it was Bubba or Devon or when Big Dick was out there with us, uh, and then you've got Atlas Security, which is just you know a bunch of guys that can take care of themselves. Um, I I you know maybe I should have worried. Uh, and I get asked the question a lot, but never really did in the moment, no. Very old school, if you think about it, just as far as them not causing riots, but almost causing riots and causing craziness, almost takes you back to like Mid-South, like Midnight Express days or something, where like, really, there's uh, the crowd is, is going nuts. I mean, they absolutely hated you guys, as far as when you were at the Dudleys. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and it was, I, I think of us as the last territory. Um, you know, we were a little bit, you know, for WWE, we were developmental. Um, you know, the guys got sent like, um, you know, we had Al Snow there and, and Brockus and, um, and, and Scorpio and, and guys that were kind of in between about to get a gimmick change and stuff like that. So we were a bit developmental and we were a bit kind of feeder system 
a lot of people compared us to world class and and we were just kind of the last of the mohicans in that respect that you know again we were just this kind of you know most of our shows happened on the east side of the country not we won't we went to you know la once and aside from that we never really got east of iowa or texas or whatever we you know it was just it, it's amazing you know we were able to get a magazine and we were able to get music albums and we were able to get action figures and video games and you know again a lot of people you know thought that for them, we were their number one or we were their number two company. And considering, you know, how little we actually had in the bank and, and and that we were kind of sometimes, you know, running on fumes and just kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. And it was just, it was amazing, you know, what we were able to do and for how long. Studley Dudley, also a pretty damn good nickname if you think about it, right? Did that your creation as well? I think I did call myself Studley Dudley, yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. Like, just obviously, you got to be one of the Dudleys if you're going to manage the uh, Dudley boys. With, with the Duds, I mean, obviously, you know, highly, highly decorated team. What did you think about the pairing? Perfect. You're, you know, you're a heat magnet. They're like, the, you know, obviously two big, tough Rumble guys. You think perfect match as far as like, okay, this wise-ass, you know, trash-talking guy is going to be backed up by these two guys. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was different kinds of heat, and I thought it was um, kind of, you know, an odd couple, fish out of water. One of these things is not like the other. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a really good pairing. What do you think about working with Joey Styles? Joey was great. Joey was really passionate. Joey was a, a hard worker, just a, a real professional um, had really, really great work ethic and, um, and, and was really, really just, you know, kind of a, you know, not a lot of people on that roster were quote unquote normal people. Uh, and, and I, I love, you know, I, I don't care whether somebody's quote unquote normal or not, you know, I don't care how crazy they are as long as they're cool. But, uh, but Joey was kind of, you know, he, he was very kind of straight laced and a family man and, um, you know, had had a, a business gig outside of ECW, and um, it was really cool to work with him. You think he was the perfect like yin to your yang, like the opposite to track yeah. kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. He was a great straight man to play off of. Absolutely. You think he was kind of not underrated, but almost to the fact where he wasn't as appreciated as an announcer. You know, they always talk about great announcers. I mean, the guy carried a company. If you think about it, with his voice for you know, seven, eight years. Yeah. Yeah, I think he deserves uh, a lot more credit than he gets. Uh, I know for a lot of people, they'll say that he's their favorite wrestling announcer of all time. Uh, but but he really did call a lot of shows all on his own, including that first pay-per-view, and should be commended for it. With him, was he easy to work with? Would he help you along? Like, Was he uh, somewhat of a mentor to you as well as far as commentating? Uh, we bounce stuff off of each other, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say so. I, I definitely respected his opinion. Um, he came up through the Indies like I did. Uh, he was on a show that was on Sports Channel America, I think. Uh, I want to say the NAWA. Um, I, I definitely, and, and he had worked for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, he was, you know, I, I was kind of the baby in the locker room at the time. I think Juventud Guerrera, came, when he came along, he was a couple months younger than me. Uh, and then eventually Roadkill 
was maybe a year or two years younger than me. Uh, but back in 95, 96, when I was in, uh, I was pretty much, you know, kind of the baby. And um, so so Joey had, you know, a ton of ECW seniority and tenure over me, uh, was a couple of years older, I think maybe a year or two uh, earlier than me in the business. And uh, and yeah, I would bounce stuff off him all the time. Yeah. Because Shane Douglas do a show with him and he was saying that, you know, obviously he's been around forever, but Joey would help him through and do a little tap on his hand. Like, you know, he'd have his hand here and he would just tap his hand saying like, okay, you know, you're up or something like he wanted to make sure he finished what he was saying. And then he wanted Shane to get in with a zinger or something. So he said, Joey would do all this stuff. No one would be able to see except for him, like a tap or like a nudge or like give him like a wink or something. Give him like a, a cue almost like very, very helpful, which is funny. because like, Shane, you're a veteran. You don't know, you know, all this stuff. He's like, but Joey kind of led me along and carried me when I was doing commentary with him. Yeah, we had a good rhythm. We had great chemistry and we had great charisma together um, when we were in the studio working on the TNN show, uh, considering he had done it on his own for so many years prior to me coming in as his color guy. Um, I, I think we did real well. What do you think about the franchise since I mentioned him? What do you think about Shane Douglas? You can bury him if you want. No, Shane's I would never. Shane's awesome. He's uh, he's brilliant, man. He's uh you know, he's somebody that I watched and learned from coming up and uh, somebody who really did get to work the territories and, and really did kind of come in in the in the early to mid 80s. And uh, no, Shane's awesome. And uh, and I've learned so much from him, uh, just kind of even just being around him. You can learn a ton from Shane. With you and ECW, you mentioned before about how they were developmental. Did you guys know or did you know that it was developmental or that Vince was feeding Paul some money and that he was giving him some guys? I mean, obviously, we know that the guys were there, but did you know it was a little bit deeper than just that? At the time, no. I mean, just whatever's obvious, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Brockus is kind of WWE and then Brock is kind of instead he's with us. But it could have been that he, you know, could be that he got shipped down. And it could be that he got kind of let go and told to, you know, at the time, I mean, especially real early on, like 96, 97, I don't think a lot of people knew or saw or figured out. It, it wasn't made, you know, painfully clear. I think it was left to people to kind of just divine and, and reason for themselves that that's you know, what was going on is that there was some sort of working relationship, but, um, but no, I, I, until, uh, until working on the ECW one night stand 05 pay-per-view, uh, I never got a paycheck that said world wrestling entertainment. All of the paychecks said HHG Corp. So, uh, so, you know, as far as I knew, and as far as I was concerned, you know, like we said at the outset, I answered to Paul. It's funny too because you would never know it because Heyman would rip Vince and WWF all the time. So it's like a ballsy thing. It's like, wait a second, you're getting why the hell you're ripping these guys? Shouldn't you be pumping them up? But he wanted to play right that kind of underdog. You know what I mean? He couldn't uh, yeah. give Vince a pat on the back on TV. Yeah, and, and that you know kept us going as something different, and that kept us going as a completely different brand, certainly different from how ECW was a number three brand, you know, later on in 2006 or 2007 or whatever it was, you know, but e even if there was more of a link between WWE and us, than than the fans kind of knew, you know, it, it just, it, it never got played up on. And it was, you know, it's kind of like, 
I guess, Gap and Old Navy and Banana Republic, at least at a time, were all owned under the same corporate umbrella. But, you know, if you didn't know, you didn't know and you didn't care and it didn't make a difference. And, you know, and they were the last ones that were going to tell you. So, yeah, you've probably been asked this a million times, but that total elimination, you know, which kind of led to the neck brace that really kill you or why? I mean, Cronus and Saturn used to lay that in. Oof. Not at the time. My body now that I'm, I'm coming up on 46, my body doesn't love, I think, uh, when I was half a lifetime ago, a lot of the uh, manager bumps and finishes that I took. But back then, um, no, back then everything was just, you know, it just was what it was. It was just another day at the office. I mean, you know, and, and the boys are going out there and killing themselves for 25 minutes at a time. So for you to just take a bump is it, it, just you know, your contribution and you dropping a coin into the, into the piggy bank, you know, but, um, no, I mean, it was, they're awesome. The eliminators were amazing. And, um, it, it, it felt, I think there was a little bit of bruised cartilage. Like, I think there was a slight, you know, bloody nose far from any, you know, far from a bad one, just nothing really to, you know, it just an hour or two later, it was as if it never happened. And, uh, and it was just perfect. I mean, it looks like, you know, it looks like a machine gun, but, uh, but that's, you know, a testament to just those guys are pros and the production team did a really good job shooting it. Did you need that neck brace? (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no. And that's another thing that Paul bestowed upon me. And that's a tribute to Andy Kaufman. So, uh, you know, a little bit of Andy Kaufman, a little bit of Austin Idol. I just, I can't lose because, you know, two of my favorite acts ever in professional wrestling are Andy Kaufman and Austin Idol. So, man, those feuds—the uh, Kaufman one with Lawler is awesome, but the Idol Rich feud with Lawler might be the best. Eighty-seven feud of the year might be the best. That is so good, and Lawler technically loses the feud, which is nuts if you think about it. I know he comes back about a few months later and wins, but he loses the blow-off match, or so we thought. So it's like, wow, what a feud! Just unpredictable, and of course, Paul is involved right in the middle of that feud, which is really, really cool. I mean, and that's, you know, more testament to wrestling needed us, you know, with the territories going and with it being the Monday Night Wars and just the big two, we were able to give fans in the mid to late 90s, we were able to keep giving them a little bit of Bill Watts, a little bit of Memphis, a little bit of Dallas, and uh, and, and wrestling needed that. For sure. What did you think? As you mentioned, you're a million dollars as a heel, nothing as babyface. What did you think about when he turned you face? And you're like shooting with, uh, I know we were, we're moving ahead with uh, Cyrus the virus. I'd like to think I was always a tweener. Um, I'd, I'd like to think, well, you know, well, maybe not. Right? No. At, at certain points, I probably was full-fledged babyface. They put me with Christian York and Joey Matthews. Yep. So towards the end, I think, like 2000, 2001, I was a baby face, but starting out on TNN, I started out as, you know, sticking in, in Joey's craw and being kind of a thorn in his side. So uh, certainly until Cyrus comes on the scene and starts to represent the network for the first few weeks of TNN, I'd like to think I was more of a tweener than a baby face. Um, and, and yeah, I just, you know, especially, you know, when I, you know, as I trended tweener and, and, and as, time went on during the TNN run. Um, it was interesting that Paul had, you know, spoken to me and pulled me aside about that I wasn't worth anything as a babyface. And and I guess that's the power of yet, you know? 
I guess at that time, and he was right, I wasn't worth anything as a baby face yet. And then later on, things change, people change, and, and I would be. You versus Cyrus. Anarchy rules, I believe. You guys had a little little match. What do you think about getting in the ring and having a, you know, a little bit of a, not a comedy match, but, you know, a, a novelty so, match. Yeah, novelty match. There you go. Perfect. I I was cool with it. Um, I, I knew that it would be the shits. I knew that I'm not very physical. I'm not an athlete. I knew that it wouldn't be, um, you know, a five-star match. I, I, you know, there are a lot of things I knew about it. But I was happy, and, and it was a great opportunity. Um, man, I Cyrus chopped me. Nothing against him. It wasn't unprofessional. It's just not used to taking chops, and he chopped me. And I, 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 I didn't know. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I mean, it's excuse me, it's just a testament to, again, you know, these guys going out there 20, 25, 30 minutes and, and just, you know, you think about some of the more spectacular looking stuff and some of the more kind of impactful and the stuff that really, really looks like there's a lot of force and a lot of trauma and a lot of fire. And, and, and you never even think about, you know, like we were talking about before, just, you know, running those ropes for 20, 25 minutes and those cables, what it does to your back and just taking a chop straight to the chest and just, you know, it's just, I mean, it was unbelievable that match. Um, it, it was just, though, a testament to, it was a reinforcement of me knowing that that's not the kind of thing, that, that that's not where my, you know, contribution um, would be best felt on a nightly basis. But, um, but it was fun. Crowds into it, you know, it's good to get in there and do it. Yep. Definitely a key. When ECW is is closing down, and obviously 2001, they're going to go bankrupt, and, and it's going to be gone. Are you there all the way until the end? Yeah. Yeah, the very end. Didn't want to leave. Conversation with Paul at one point in early 2001 was, um, tell me what I need to hear so I can stay. You know? Yeah. What, 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 what can you tell me so that, uh, you know, it, it was it was along those lines. But I was there until the very end, that last January pay-per-view, uh, right after New Year's in 01 from, uh, from Manhattan. And uh, I was there for that. And I was in the truck when they ran the billboard that said that the next pay-per-view that never happened would be Living Dangerously in March. Um, I, I, I was there all the way through February or March or whatever it was. And then by March, April, Paul started out with WWE on TV and, and did WrestleMania that year. Were you in Pine Bluff at the at the last show? I wasn't. No, Arkansas, I didn't make that loop. I think both of those were house shows. And during the TNN days, I didn't do house shows, really. I just did TV. So I wasn't in Pine Bluff. I wasn't in um, Poplar Bluff, I think was the other one that weekend. Um, I wasn't there, no. I what regret did you that. I wish I could have been there. I was going to say, what did you think? You, you think like, oh, man, just I know you don't think it's going to be the last show, but any regrets of just not making the last show, even though it's not really your fault, but just not being there? Would have been nice. Um, yeah, would, would have been nice. Would have been uh, a cool moment to have. Were you shocked that it was closing? Like, was it one of those things where like, nah, Paul, he's done it before. He'll save us and, and we'll be we'll be back. I thought that all through 2000, like in the last quarter of 2000, I did think that. And then 
at the January pay-per-view, I was in the truck and I saw the, the billboard for the March pay-per-view. And then I was leaving the truck to go back into the building and Paul pulled me aside and he said, um, this week uh, at the studio for production, uh, you don't need to be there. Uh, we don't need you this week. There's going to be a little downtime. Wow. And, and yeah, and, and that's what I kind of that because I mean, we were, you know, we were only getting every other check. I think we were getting paid every other check where every other check was clearing. Uh, but we were essentially getting paid two weeks of pay for every four weeks that we worked. And, um, and I remember going back into the building after being told that there would be a little bit of downtime. And I just, I started to kind of crumble a bit. I started, I think I, I, my eyes started to tear and Christian York and Joey Matthews were in the room that I was in and they saw it. And I, they thought, I guess it was unlike me. And they were like, dude, are you all right? Like, is everything okay? What's wrong? And I just kind of looked at them and I was like, if you guys had only gotten here three years ago. And I just, and I, th I think that's all I said. And I just, uh, just went back into my kind of, uh, you know, just being introspective or whatever. But, um, yeah, I just, I kind of, at, at a certain point, uh, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. Man, you're crazy because ECW goes down, WCW goes down a few months later. Crazy time in 01. You mentioned the pay. So you basically, you got half pay, what you should have gotten kind of for the last few months? Yeah, we, every other check I think we weren't getting or every other check wasn't clearing. Um, but we were essentially getting half pay for the last at least two or three months. I don't remember it exactly. I, I just remember a handful of checks at least uh, not ever coming through. Yeah, I think it was more than that. I think um, I think all told at the end of the day, I think I was owed around, especially if you throw in some, because some of that hotel stuff went sideways. I think I was owed $25,000 in real life money and, um, and didn't really, I mean, not to say I didn't care, but um, I didn't go to bankruptcy court over it. Uh, I knew that the end result of that would be 10 cents on the dollar full case. And I just didn't think it was worth it. Um, you know, I wanted to stay in the business and I wanted to just be, you know, loyal and company and just, um, and, and hopefully that's paid off in my karma, you know, because, um, you know, quintessential stud muffin, I'll give you for example, quintessential stud muffin is wwe ip it's their intellectual property because it was paul's idea so it was ecw intellectual property so wwe got it in bankruptcy and uh and i've never been told not to use it on the indies or or whatever i do you know i i've showed up on tna hardcore justice as the quintessential stud muffin joel gertner so you know i don't know if that's a case of flying under the radar and nobody cares or a case of you know, people, you know, just doing right by me because maybe I did right by somebody else one other time. But, um, but I, you know, I was owed $25,000 and at the time I was 25 years old and, um, I, I was in the business to get as far ahead as I could and to have fun and to do what I love. And it was less of a business and more of a passion. You know, it was, it was more of a game than it was a business. It, it was me trying to see, 
how long I could stay in the game and, and how far I could advance. And um, so, you know, again, not to say that, you know, the 25 grand, you know, didn't matter. I'm sure I could have put it to good use, but, um, uh, but I was just, I was super young. I didn't have much obligation and it just wasn't baby's milk money. You know, it's still though crazy. Uh, you know, some of the guys say, you know, mode this, the mode that, or you know, there's no way to get it back and there's nothing you can do. It just sucks for the guys involved for sure. I mentioned this when I interviewed CW Anderson a while ago. And for some reason, Paul somehow heard the interview and went nuts on Twitter. It's like 15 things in a row about how the rollerball thing was bullshit. Uh, CW Anderson, which is so funny because CW Anderson is like the nicest guy, but he was ripping CW Anderson just like, you're a scrub and shut up. And like, he must have had enough of the rollerball stuff. But what did you kind of take about it when, when you see Paul like, oh, he said he's going on business and all of a sudden he's rollerball, you see. Was that one of those things where like, wow, I thought he was trying to save us or was he really in California doing the rollerball stuff? You know, I don't mind. I, I never minded the rollerball thing. Um, at least as much as the next person, I never minded it, but I never really minded it at all. Um, if it keeps him out there and that keeps us, I, I, I didn't have a problem with the rollerball. I'm surprised so many more people bring up the rollerball of it all rather than, oh, Paul just showed up on WWE TV as a color guy. You know, like, right. if, if, yeah. like I, and I wasn't even necessarily offended by, I forget the chronology of it all, but like, but you know, you do what you have to and whatever. Like, I didn't even care about that. Like it, not, it didn't really surprise me. It didn't really offend me. Like I wasn't even really put back on my ass about the WWE, him showing up on WWE programming. But I would think that that to, to somebody who would be offended for lack of a better term, I would think that showing up on WWE programming would be a lot more egregious and offensive than rollerball. But um, Paul tried, you know, Butum and Murray were involved, the real world. Um, I had heard that maybe they were going to get involved and ECW was going to turn into like a reality show format, kind of like some of the reality shows now, like Total Divas and stuff like that, uh, where, you know, the cameras would follow us on the road, you know, driving down the road, going to the shows and stuff like that. There was that. There was a syndication deal, I think, with Buena Vista, which was on a lot of the ABC O&Os, like, you know, back in the day, like Saturday night, 1230 a.m., you turn on Channel 7 in New York and you get, like, ER. Well, ER is <laughs> yeah. not an ABC show. It's an NBC show. The only reason it's showing up Saturday night on Channel 7 is because it's part of a syndication deal. And it's through Buena Vista, which was a subsidiary of Disney. And and I had been told that we were talking with them about something like that so that we could stay on real strong stations Saturday nights. I mean, I heard this, that, and the other. And, and I, you know, I, it, it was in – look – Paul was ECW. For me, Paul gave me a break. He gave me a chance. He gave me a shot, and he trusted me. He gave a lot of other people a break as well. He advanced a lot of other people's careers, and, and he really was a lot of the reason why ECW ever got as popular and successful as it was. I think he kept it alive as long as was feasibly and viably possible and as long as made sense. But if it got to a point where it couldn't be done – and it didn't make sense for him. I mean, I don't expect the man to roll over and die. You know, if you can get rollerball or if you can go to work for WWE, you know, then then so should everybody else be able to. 
And if they can't, and it's not their time yet for that, that, that's hardly Paul's fault. If anything, working in the ECW system has you at least closer and better prepared for that one day than you might ever otherwise be. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I didn't I didn't care that he was in L.A. doing rollerball. It didn't make a difference to me. Harry Slash, who I talked to, was saying that was totally blown out of proportion and, you know, basically saying, like, you know, cut uh, Paul some slack. He knows a lot of the guys were getting on about it. Kind of like what you said. It's like, surprised you weren't more upset about WWE than him being in rollerball of all things. Yeah. It's crazy. The uh, Just the, the aftermath of ECW. Um, did you ever have any, any like, inclination, any shot, like, hey, let's go to WWE or – at one point, hey, go to WCW, or was that never really on the table, or not really a thought? I heard that WCW was interested. Um, I heard that too. I, I heard that they were interested. Um, I never really, uh, I never really got serious about reaching out to them. My time to do that would have been after I got my ECW release which would have been February, March of 01. And as we talked about a few weeks after that, by like okay. March, April of 01, they're out of business. So I heard that in 01, they may have been interested, but in 01, they weren't in a position to start off new guys and be interested in much of anything, you know? Um, WWE, I before I ever had my ECW contract... I worked off contract for like three years, two, three years before I signed the contract, before I was ever presented one, I think I put a feeler out. I wound up on the phone with Terry Taylor and he threw a price at me and said, how does that sound? And compared to what I was making at the time before getting a raise on a contract, the price that he quoted me sounded really nice. And I said, that sounds great, actually. He said, I think we're going to put you with public enemy. And I think a lot of us remember what happened with public enemy. Um, if I was yes. brought in with public enemy, would my run have been as short? Would I have been moved over to uh, doing something else after they weren't there anymore. So, um, you know, I had that conversation with Terry Taylor, but really I, I was, I was super loyal. I was just, I, I kept getting moved up and I kept being a big fish and, and I was a young dude and Paul was my mentor and there was never any reason really to leave. So when TNN came into the picture and when I was offered the contract and the Dudleys were leaving and they're talking to me and they're telling me they're going. And I don't know whether they're feeling me out to see if I want to go with them or whether they're just somehow some reason telling me not to sign or I don't know. But they left and I if, if they were if they ever were looking for me to either find a way or, you know, I, I just. I, they they left and it was their time to do that and I wasn't sure it was for me and I thought that if I if it was meant for me to be in WWE uh, it would happen one day so I and then right as they're leaving we get TNN and Paul tells me that I'll be the co-host and the color commentator um, April 30th I think it was of 99 I signed a deal 
And um, so, yeah, it just it's amazing. But everything just kind of timed out in a certain way. As we head for the finish, as we hit the wind down button, I got to ask you this because I know you know your thing about stocks. What's a good stock right now? What, what, what are we uh, what are we buying? What are we selling? What are we uh, what are we trading? I hope I'm not too late with it because it's been doing really well for the last six, 12 months. So I hope that's not, you know, an indicator that it's not going to do as well for the next six, 12 months. But um, I, I haven't been, I've been in a lot of communications, media, tech, really a lot of streaming. I'm in like the top five streaming companies, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, I'm in stuff like that. Um, but just last week I got into Skechers. Uh, their ticker symbol is SKX. Uh, they've been doing really well. And uh, in the last day or two, uh, I'm up a percent and a half or two percent on them, up from 49 to about 50. Um, so I'm I'm pretty long on Skechers, uh, but again, I, I've been long on Apple since 2010, since right around the time that they announced that they were going to do a brand new form factor, uh, which was essentially the iPad that wasn't even named yet at the time. I think they were going back and forth between the iPad and the iSlate. But um, but I've been in since then about ten and a half years, uh, eleven and a half years, and um, Amazon, Netflix, Comcast. Uh, just got back into Disney. I, I bought a leap for Disney uh, earlier this week, and it's doing well. Um, there's some gold-backed crypto, AABB, and DSCR. So Asia Broadband and Discover Metals, um, gold-backed crypto. So you're getting like a tenth of a gram. It, it, it's, it's based on the price of gold at a tenth of a gram. And it's a way to have a gold token that your crypto is backed by, by these gold miners, and it's their gold. Uh, so I think that's an interesting idea because gold is gold may be going up here in the States. It's a good hedge against the economy, uh, but it's also always powerful in different cultures like China and India. So, um, so that's some of the stuff that I'm looking at right now. Nice. I was lucky that to really two stocks that I had uh, years ago. I had Walgreens, but I, I bought it cheap, and they were up to a hundred something at one point. Now, obviously, down back to like fifty. But I had sold it. I made a like nice little uh, chunk of change. Then I had WB stock. I bought it for eleven. They were almost at a hundred. I'm like, oh, I only had like five shares, six shares, something like that. But I'm like, I'm getting rid of this. There's no way <laughs> in hell it's staying at a hundred dollars. Like, yeah. So I made a two stocks that I had. I made a pretty penny, but I know nothing about stocks other than I always check to see where certain. Like, I do some side business with Lowe's. I always want to see where Lowe's is. Oh well, I'll check Home Depot. You know, and check out different things like that CVS. I'm always interested in what they're up to. So different. Uh, I, I remember. I remember when WWE was at eleven. I remember in 2013 begging people to buy WWE at 11. Yeah. Crazy. And now what are they, 60, 61 or 59? 60, something like that? yeah. Yeah, back in the high 50s or 60, yeah. Crazy. Wrestling stock. You know? Crazy. But they're not wrestling company. They're a media company, whatever Vince right. says, right? <laughs> they are whatever they say they are, yep. So for you, what else you got going on? I know we, we talked about the two podcasts, but give us a little rundown of what, what else we're going to see from the podcasts. Oh, we've got we've got some. I hate to say what guests are coming up because then on the outside chance that they wind up canceling. But we've mm. got three great guests, one better than the next. Nobody's better than the next, but I mean, just the huge names. Uh, with, more important to me, doesn't matter the name it's about compelling stories to tell 
And the three guests that I have lined up next, I think are going to tell some unbelievable stories and anecdotes and, uh, and I can't wait to have them on. Um, that was extreme drops tomorrow and our zoom is going to be tomorrow. Um, and, and that's about it, man. I've got a YouTube channel, Joel Gertner, uh, where I do everything but wrestling. So cooking, unboxing, uh, scratch off lottery auctions, um, stuff like that. Um, my Twitter is stud muffin says my Instagram is quintessential stud muffin. Uh, you can get a cameo from me at cameo. Um, you can buy t-shirts at pro wrestling tees. Um, and I'll be ring announcing VXS wrestling, um, this Saturday night on fight TV. Um, just got a ton of stuff coming up, man. Yeah, love it. Keep him busy. Damn, and that cameo sounds like a great idea. Well, well, well. I mean, you probably have some awesome limericks and some uh, good sexual innuendos for that. <laughs> I, I try my best. Awesome stuff. Well, Joel, thank you uh, so much for all the time. I just want to uh, say appreciate it. And you still have that neck brace. Do you still have it? <laughs> I do. At a virtual signing this past weekend, I sold a neck brace. Oh. Uh, but it was t- that one was going to start putting itself on pretty soon. I've been wearing it for the better part of the year. So uh, when I get to VXS, I'll be on a, on a new neck brace uh, for the second half of 2021. But, um, but yes, yeah, still have the neck brace. Uh, still after all these years. Uh, blessed, man. Blessed. Awesome stuff, Joel. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the time tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.